What does it take to be a great Shakespearean? Well, many of them will give you many different answers. For one, though, it seems that the key, above all else, is preparation. Oh, you are men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. That was Anthony Shear in the 2016 Royal Shakespeare Company production of King Lear. As he prepared for Lear, just as he did getting ready for Richard III in 1984 and Falstaff in 2014, Sir Anthony kept a meticulous diary focusing above all else on his preparation. All three of those diaries have been published. Year of the King for Richard, Year of the Fat Knight for Falstaff, and now Year of the Mad King, which chronicles his doubts, his fears, his marriage proposal, his illnesses, and all of the life and death that swirled around him as he prepared for the most grueling role Shakespeare ever wrote for an older actor. Cher came in recently to talk to us in detail about just how he prepares. We call this podcast, Go Get It Ready. Cher is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. You have such a long association with Lear. Not only did you play The Fool twice, you write in your book that Lear happened to be the very first play you ever saw performed by the RSC. And that was when you came to England from South Africa with your mother, I think. So is that right? That's right. On the very first weekend of being in the UK, this is in 1968, I implored my mother to come with me to a place that I regarded as a kind of mythic place, Stratford-upon-Avon. And so we travelled up on that Saturday and had booked a ticket for the matinee, and it happened to be King Lear. And it was absolutely extraordinary because back in South Africa... There hadn't been much Shakespeare. Well, if Shakespeare wasn't such a big part of your schooling or your life in South Africa, why were you so wild to go to Stratford-upon-Avon? There was a magazine, a British magazine called Plays and Players, which uh, I sort of poured over at home in Cape Town. And it was absolutely gold dust to me. So I knew all about the RSC. I knew all about their legendary productions. And it was part of the the whole sort of fantasy, if you like, of coming to England was that I was going to finally see these theatres that I had read so much about. And and then you went on to experience the this play, Lear, day after day as the fool in two different productions. I imagine just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of Lear. So finally, when you yeah. set about preparing to play the role itself, how were you able to approach the play with fresh eyes and fresh ears? How, how do you shake off what you know already? Well, it's not a bad thing to know a Shakespeare play well because, you know, 
they take an awful lot of getting acquainted to. And over those previous productions where I'd been the fool, I'd certainly developed ideas about Lear. Uh, but you, you sort of learn from seeing great actors play a part. Um, you know, you have seen it work, you know it works, and yet you have your own instincts about playing it. So I found that kind of helpful, really. Well, one of the things, and I suppose one of the instincts you had about it when you read the first act of Lear again, was just how much happens in that first scene. And that always strikes me, too, as a yeah. as an audience member. There's just such speed to the action. It's almost comical. Give me the map there. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our first intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, crawl toward death. <laughs> our son of... You noticed that, and you got the idea to go with the comedy, to get the audience to see that it's absurdist theater rather than tragedy. Tell me more about yes, that right. and, and whether that initial insight survived all the way to opening night. Well, you know, when Peter Brook uh, did his legendary production of Lear, he was much influenced by an essay called Lear or Endgame. And he, uh, he reckoned that somehow the kind of the spirit of Samuel Beckett was alive in Lear which makes the play all the more poignant in, in the moments where it, it has to be. So it seemed like a very good way of looking at the piece. And, of course, the fool is key to that, you know, that, that Shakespeare has chosen to put into the middle of this tragedy a character called the fool. Mark it, uncle! More than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest, lend less than thy owest, ride more than thou goest, learn more than thou trowest, leave thy drink and thy whore, and keep in a door, and thou shalt have more than two tens to a scob. He's not called Touchstone like the clown in As You Like It, he's called the fool. Yeah, he's an archetype. Yeah, and he's there in the middle of the action. So Shakespeare clearly has this idea that there's a kind of touch of absurdity to what's happening, and it's it's a very good way of approaching the play. Oh, that's wonderful. I, you also, you, you have so many influences in, in your work on Lear, and you write about reading... Uh, John Gilgood's anthology of, of wit, wisdom, and infamous gaffes called yeah. Gilgoodies while, yeah. while you were preparing Lear. And uh, Gilgood, of course, played Lear in way back in 1955 in a costume yeah. designed by the furniture designer Isamu Noguchi. And he said that Gil, Gilgood said he was terribly worried because it made him look like a Gruyere cheese. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. And if you look at the photographs, that's absolutely accurate. There's this strange costume with big kind of holes in it. And I, what I found uh, strange about the story and slightly worrying is that it was Gilgood's 
fourth uh, Lear, and he was co-directing it with George Devine, so he was completely in control of what was happening. So you have to ask how such a very experienced actor director could end up looking quite so foolish, but uh, there you are, you see, that, that happens in theatre. Sometimes good ideas are close to bad ideas and it's your job to try and figure out which one it is. I can see how you would be worried. I mean, here your you, your partner is Greg Duran. He's directing this Lear. You, you are, it could all go wrong, <laughs> just in very basic ways. Well, any Shakespeare can go wrong because they're such great plays. You know, each time you come to do one of the great ones, you're pitting yourself against this masterpiece, you know. How are you going to fulfill the challenge that it throws you? It's incredibly stimulating, of course, because you're working on the best plays that exist in, in the English language, but it's also quite scary. Well, there are so many things that can go wrong. And, and one of the biggest hurdles, of course, in pro- working on Lear is what to make of his madness. And, and you write about this a lot. And in fact, you asked a number of people about this over the course of the year that you spent preparing. So what answers did you get and which of them finally clicked for you into something you could use? No, they cannot touch me for coining. I am the king himself. It's become perversely fashionable in recent years to say that Lear has Alzheimer's. Both me and my partner Greg had very painful close-up views of the real thing because my mother and Greg's father both had Alzheimer's. And it just, I couldn't reconcile the way Lear behaves with, uh, with Alzheimer's. Draw me a clothier's yard. Look, look, a mouse. Peace, peace. This piece of toasted cheese will do it. I ended up interviewing a professor of psychology and I was immediately encouraged at the beginning of our meeting when he, he sat down and he said, now look, let me just make it clear, I do not believe that Lear has dementia. And I thought, right, that's interesting, so what did he believe? Well, he said the reason why I rule out dementia is there are three things. First of all, in the at the beginning of the play, Lear is making big plans for the future. Planning is not something that someone with dementia is really capable of doing. The second thing is that he's in very robust health for an 80-year-old. And then the third thing was that in the last section of the play, Lear is saner and gentler and more loving than we've seen uh, throughout the piece. And again, this was simply not consistent with somehow waking up out of Alzheimer's or dementia. 
So the professor's theory was that that the condition is delusional rather than uh, dementia. Bring up the brown bills, all well-flown bird, in a clut, in a clut. He's out in a wild storm. The script says that he tears off the outer layer of clothing. And so he would catch a chill. This would turn into a fever, which would go into the brain. And at at that exact point in the play, he starts to hallucinate and starts to see all sorts of things that aren't there. When the rain came to wet me once, and the wind to make me chatter, when the thunder would not peace at my bidding, there I found them, there I smelt them out. Go to, they are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. So that just made complete sense to me. I love it when we can apply sort of modern thinking about medicine to Shakespeare. It does seem, though, that the madness is like a key to to moderating, for instance, your rage throughout the play, Lear's rage. There's rage in the beginning, and then there's rage during the storm. And, yeah. I, and I found it really interesting in your book that you decided that you needed to create a scale of rage as a performer. W- what kind of scale did you come up with? Is this a you know, on a scale of one, one to ten? And how did you use it? Well, you know, it's one of those things that you sort of plan to do beforehand when you're thinking very calmly about the part. So, you know, you think, well, he, he's got so many tantrums in the first part of the play that I'd better hold back a bit in this scene and just do his rage up to the level of six. Goodbye, me! His tent come not between the dragon and his rock. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. Hence, and avoid my sight! So that I can go to seven in the next scene and keep some in reserve so that in the storm it can be a ten. But actually, when the part is really flowing through you and the whole production is at top gear and galloping along, you no longer think in those terms. You just commit yourself to every scene. It's one of those parts that you really do just have to absolutely go with it. Hear me, recreant! Online allegiance, hear me, that thou hast sought to make us break our vows, which we durst never yet take thy reward. But I do think it's so interesting in prep that you spent a good amount of time, at least in your book, talking about how hard it was to deal with Lear's famous lines where he's arguing with the storm. So what was giving you such a hard time? Can you give us a insight into that line and your solutions? Well, it's simply true of all Shakespeare's roles, you know. Try standing on stage and saying to be or not to be. These lines are so famous. 
that you're terrified that if you pause for a second between the words, the audience will simply finish the line for you and sort of chant, you know, to be or not to be. So it it just happens with those famous lines. But again, it's something you worry about beforehand, but it's rather like what we were saying before about in the actual moment, it doesn't, it's no longer a problem. You are simply, you have to, the character is impelled to shout at the storm, blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage blow, and you've forgotten that it's a famous line. You simply, you've come to the point where your character is in this situation and, uh, as you said, is arguing with the storm. You came up with an ingenious backstory, though, to this scene, that, that maybe it's about the winds aren't blowing yet, yes. and the speech is a desperate plea, yes. which is a different motivation than some... You, you could have come up with something else. Yes, that's right. That gives different different velocity. It helped me that because uh, it's a difficult scene to rehearse because the other character is the storm. course, is not the only king in your repertoire. You've played so many roles in Shakespeare, and so many, of course, of them are kings. Uh, one of the kings that you played was Leontes in A Winter's Tale. Yes. And I loved your story about a, a key bit of insight that you gained on a chance visit to Buckingham Palace, where you saw the real thing in action, which is what you guys in England get that we can't get here. So so tell us about that 50th birthday party. What did you learn about kings that, that you were able to use? Well, the audience sees Leontes cracking up badly with um, a condition that, again, through talking to psychiatrists, I discovered was something called morbid jealousy or sexual jealousy, where someone becomes obsessed that their partner is is being unfaithful to them when they're not. And yet he has to carry on, carry on being the king, trying to put a, a, a sort of normal face on things. And I, in that visit to Buckingham Palace, I was just struck by how royalty is protected by a a small army of attendants round them at all time, that if you were experiencing what Leontes is experiencing, there's kind of like there are these attendants that act like a buffer, a, a cushion that kind of protect you so that it would be possible to both be carrying on your duties 
and suffering this kind of inner trauma. Uh, well, King Leontes, King Lear, uh, your first role, your breakthrough role, also a king, a king and a villain. Yeah. And you also wrote a book about the year that you spent working on Richard III, yeah. the year of the king. Yeah. And Richard, of course, it's a very different kind of king, a very different kind of man. Every role is different. I understand that. Yeah. But looking back, do you see any through line in particularly these three portrayals of royalty and, and Shakespeare's insight into what that entails? But you see, I think that Shakespeare's genius is that he writes those three kings completely differently. Richard III is fighting to become king, is fighting for the crown and indeed murdering people along the way in order to get it. You know, he's ruthlessly ambitious for the crown. Leontes, he has the crown, but he's cracking up within it and having to deal with, with that tension. Lear begins the play by giving away the crown. He wants to retire. And and then all those disasters uh, ensue from him giving away power. So they're three completely different and completely fascinating studies of, of kingship. Yeah, you very clearly explained it in terms of the three ages of humankind, right? You, you, you are acquiring as a youth. You're trying to get to your place, and then you have it, but it's not working out. And then at the end, the end life stage, all about... Um, giving things away. Yeah. Loss. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about physical presence on stage, and particularly, obviously, as, as Richard III, uh, dealing with Richard III's physicality, what was your process to find the right way to move as Richard? What choices did you make, or how did it follow, flow through your interpretation of the play? And, and I noticed just small things. The director, Terry Hands, warned you off uh, that, and this is a quote, uh, warned you off sustaining a cripple position all evening. Um, not a PC way to say it, but anyway, he, he said, alternate legs, for God's sakes, or you'll go, yeah. you'll go lame. Well, you know, the, the part is famous for crippling the actors that play it because it's the third largest part in Shakespeare and he's very much driving the action uh, throughout. So it's a part that has to be played with extra energy. Villain, set down the course, or by St. Paul, I'll make a course of him that disobeys. My lord, stand back and let the coffin pass. A man of dog. Stand low and I come on! What? Do not tremble. I am all afraid. And to do that with a part that size while holding your body in some kind of twisted position, which, you know, his opening speech, he describes himself in very graphic terms. So, uh, in fact, together with a physiotherapist, I worked on ways that we could play um, his disability in a way that wouldn't hurt me. And at the same time in rehearsals, I was noticing that whenever people curse him, particularly when the women curse him, they use animal imagery. Never hung 
poison on a fowler toad. Out of my sight, thou dost infect mine eyes. Thy nice sweet lady have infected mine. But they were basilisk. And most interestingly, he's called a bottled spider. So I began to wonder if there was a way of giving the illusion of him having more than two legs. And so the idea came about of playing him on crutches. And then the designer said and that he could add extra limbs, if you like, to the image by the, the costume could have these long pieces coming from the elbows that almost touch the ground. Oh, this is fascinating and so productive for, your, for that production. But uh, that makes it even more interesting that you say in your introduction to your book about uh, playing Richard that all the worrying about the physical challenges was partly to compensate for your feelings of inadequacy with Shakespeare's language. Yes. yes. Lady, you know no rules of charity, which renders good for bad, blessings for curses. Villain, thou knowest no lord of God, no man, no beast of fierce, but no some touch of pity. But I know none, and therefore am no beast. Oh, wonderful when devils tell the truth. More wonderful <laughs> when angels are so angry. But safe, divine perfection of a woman, of these supposed crimes, to give me leave by circumstance, but to acquit myself. But oh, say, you the infection of a man of these known evils, but to give me leave by circumstance, to accuse thy cursed self. Fairer tongue can name thee. Let me have some patient leisure to excuse myself. Fowler than being brought up in South Africa without a lot of Shakespeare around me, so that when I arrived in this country, I felt disadvantaged. I felt I was several steps behind. And I'm just eternally grateful that I've spent most of my career at the Royal Shakespeare Company. When I joined the RSC, I kept thinking, you know, I'm being paid to be in this company. I should be paying them. I'm, I'm getting this, these masterclasses in Shakespeare. And it's, it has served me well. But coming to Shakespeare as an outsider, and you're, you're, you're a triple threat as an outsider. You're from <laughs> South Africa. You're, you're Jewish. You're gay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wasn't that paradoxically um, a way into Richard III for you? I mean, oh, yeah. A help in getting over your insecurity about the language? Sure. Yes. No, I've played a lot of outsiders. And my um, my own personal life experience of being an outsider has, you know, helped enormously. It's interesting, isn't it, that when you're growing up, these things that differentiate you from everybody else, you're self-conscious about and you wish you were like everyone else. And then if you're lucky enough to be in one of the arts, you learn that those very same things, you know, give you a, a different insight. These eyes, which never shed remorseful tear, not when my warlike father, like a child, told the sad story of my father's death, and twenty times made pause to sob and weep that all the standers by had wet their cheeks like trees bedashed with rain. In that sad time, my manly eyes did scorn and humble tear, and what that sorrow could not thence exhale, Thy beauty hath, and made them blind with weeping. 
teach not thy lips such scorn. For it was made for kissing, lady, not for such contempt. If thy revengeful heart cannot forgive, lo, here I lend thee the sharp-pointed sword, which thou pleased to hide in this true breast, and let the soul forth and adore thee. I humbly beg the death upon my knee. Well, I don't, I don't know if this exactly applies, but you do talk about using your life experience in relation to playing Falstaff, who we were talking about kings. I don't know. Falstaff is a kind of anti-king, I think, in my mind. Um, Lord, but you, Lord of Misrule, he is, yes. Right, and you write about using your struggle with, with serious dependency on cocaine to inform your role, uh, and, and you play Falstaff as a serious alcoholic. That was your your take on him. Yeah. So how how did that shape your performance? Well, you know, he he's clearly drinking a lot, and there's a way of playing him just as a jolly old chap who likes his drink. But because of my own experience with dependency, though that was uh, cocaine, I just started to recognize patterns of his behavior. There are a couple of scenes and he hasn't had a drink and he's very irritable and very aggressive. And then at a certain point in those scenes, he gets given a drink and he changes, his personality changes. Give me a cup of sack <laughs> to make thine eyes look red that it may be thought I have wept. For I must mm, speak in passion and I will do it in King Cambyses' vein. Well? Here is my leg. And here is my speech. Stand aside, nobility. What I liked about it, it it kind of took the... You know, the role is known as a great comic role, which I found intimidating because I'm not specifically a comic actor, but I am a character actor. And by making him an alcoholic and various other things, I was able to just see him as this fantastically rich character. And getting the laughs was simply an added bonus. That makes so much sense because I've seen so many actors do Falstaff and play him more like a kind of clown. And in contrast, your Falstaff has a dignity. Shall the son of England prove a thief and take purses? A question to be asked. Oh, Rahel. He doth it as like one of these harlotry players as ever I Peace, good pint pot. Peace, good tickle brain. There is a thing, Harry, which thou hast often heard of, and it is known to many in our land by the name of Pitch. The great American Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom says that Falstaff, along with Hamlet, of Shakespeare's two greatest creations. It's because Shakespeare does give him three dimensions, and there's his fear of aging, his fear of dying, and then, of course, the whole play builds up towards that very poignant last scene where he is rejected by his best buddy, uh, Hal, who has now become... Uh, King Henry V, and 
cannot have the Lord of Misrule at his side anymore. And it's a very powerful and very sad scene. But the whole play's been building to that. It is in the writing. So I think actors who don't play all his dimensions are simply losing out because it's, it's, it's so fantastically well-written. I want to step back for a moment from specific roles to just the more general observation about Shakespeare's language. And you've written about how Shakespeare's language feels very different in your mouth as an actor from Marlowe's words or other writers of the period, their language. Tell me more about that. How so? Well, it's something that as an actor, you you simply can sort of taste them in in almost like food. And there's something absolutely particular to the taste of Shakespeare's language. Now, I happen to have played not only Marlowe, but several of the other Jacobean playwrights, Massinger and Marston. And it's so interesting how they almost struggle with the iambic pentameter. Marlowe, by making it very regular, you know, that de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum beat with Marlowe. Yeah, they call it Marlowe's Mighty Lines. Marlowe's Mighty Lines, which can become (laughs) mightily monotonous uh, after several hours. But the other ones, their use of the verse structure becomes quite awkward and jagged And it's not that they don't write terrific plays and terrific characters, but when you've played them and you come back to Shakespeare, it's simply remarkable. I know I have to let you go, but just one more question. You've done Prospero, Leontes, Richard, Lear, Macbeth, Falstaff. What's left in the repertoire (laughs) that, that you would be burning to do? Well, there isn't because, you know, Shakespeare wrote three great roles for older actors and I have done them now so there's 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 nothing left in in the Shakespeare canon I don't know maybe some terrific modern play will come along and I'll I'll do that or or maybe I'll just start to take things a bit easier and write more books and paint more paintings Is that freeing then? Well, it's been such a rich experience. I've been very, very lucky, but um, I think it has sort of come to a natural end. Well, sadly, so has our conversation. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you and, and getting to hear about your work. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Anthony Sher is a painter, an author, and a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. His newest book, detailing how he prepared for the RSC production of King Lear, is called Year of the Mad King. It was published by Nick Hearn Books in 2018. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Go Get It Ready was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had help from Armani Urub and Philippa Harland at the Royal Shakespeare Company and John Barton at Nick Hearn Books. We had technical help from Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Dan Sterling and Kathy Devlin at The Sound Company in London. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, 
we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get this podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.